Emergency Medical Minute presents Laboring Under Pressure. Hello and welcome back to Emergency Medical Minute presents. I'm Jeffrey Olson. I'm a second year medical student at the University of Colorado, and I'm in the studio today with Dr. Travis Barlock, an emergency medicine physician at Swedish Medical Center. Dr. Barlock, how are you doing? I'm fantastic. Thanks for bringing me back to the studio today. Yeah, it's great to have you back. The purpose of today's episode is we're going to be recapping an event that Emergency Medical Minute hosted at the University of Denver. Dr. Brock, do you want to tell us a little bit about this event? Yeah, it was a ton of fun to put on. It was called Laboring Under Pressure, Managing Obstetric Emergencies in a Global Setting. We had different physicians come in and give a brief lecture series on exactly that, on different types of obstetric emergencies. We had an anesthesiologist, an obstetrician, and an emergency medicine physician each give their own take on different obstetric emergencies. We used the event to raise money for an organization called Health Outreach. Latin America, known as OLA, and we were very pleased to partner with them for this event. Yeah, I thought it was a very fun, very classy night, lots of good food. If you're in the Denver area and you are able to come to our next event, you definitely should. So let me tell you about our first speaker. His name is Dr. Jason Papazian. He practices obstetric anesthesiology for the Maternal Fetal Care Unit at Children's Hospital Colorado. He's also the Assistant Program Director of Didactics for the Anesthesiology Residency at the University of Colorado, as well as a faculty advisor to residents and obstetric anesthesiology fellows. Let's go ahead and get started with our first clip from his talk. So let's say it's around 2 a.m. You're covering OB as part of the labor team. You're startled out of your middle-of-the-night haze by a page going off and the rapid response. And the rapid response pager says, room 418. So you head down the hallway. And along with everyone else descending on that room, you think to yourself, who, who was in that room? I can't, I can't remember. Oh, you know, it was that really, really sweet first-time mom, super healthy, super excited to be a mom. And you think to yourself, oh, this has to be one of the 20 accidental pages that go out per day not going to be a big deal. It's fine. But as you get closer and closer to the room, people aren't walking away. It has a different feel than that accidental page. And as you get in the room, you realize this is very real. There's a woman laying there, still pregnant, gasping for air, turning blue. The nurse has just put oxygen on her. And just then the anesthesiology team walks in. Seeing the situation, they immediately go to the head of the bed. This lady's not protecting her airway, not breathing appropriately. We've got to start mass ventilating. So I get an ambu bag, um, start to mass ventilate. They're moving air maybe a little bit. Like I said, the anesthesiologist tries to mass ventilate, maybe does a little bit, so immediately moves to get equipment to intubate this patient, meaning put a breathing tube down into her windpipe so that we can ventilate and oxygenate her. At one attempt... No success. Looks up from the bed and says, call my partner downstairs. I need help now. And as this is happening, the patient becomes unresponsive. All right. So we just listened to that clip. Wanted to ask you some questions about it. Let's start at the top of the story that Dr. Papazian presented. He talked about a rapid response and a pager going off. 
Can you describe to us what a rapid response is? Sure. So anyone in the hospital is familiar with rapid responses. Basically, there's a system-wide kind of alarm that goes off in the hospital for when a patient decompensates. So there's some kind of initial recognition of this, and it's usually either by a marked change in a patient's vital signs or in just their clinical appearance. So when patients either become hypoxic, hypotensive, or are clearly in distress or altered, they will often call a rapid response or even a code blue if they are pulseless. And so those are basically hospital-wide measures to try to bring people to the bedside immediately to provide rapid intervention. Okay. And then Dr. Papazian brought up a little bit of terminology I think maybe some of our listeners wouldn't be familiar with, and that's the term head of the bed. So what does it mean to go to the head of the bed and what are the duties of HOB? Yeah, sure. So head of the bed is probably best described as being right just behind the patient looking down at them. So that is the head of the bed while the foot of the bed would be near their feet. And the primary role for that is to do airway management. So to be inspecting and ultimately managing their airway. You, you could also say the role of head of the bed would also be to maintain C-spine. And that would be for more of a traumatic patient presentation. But in this clinical scenario, it's essentially solely airway management. Okay. So you are literally at the head of the bed. And is that person kind of considered the leader of the operation? No. The person who is running the code or the response is almost importantly not at the head of the bed. They are probably best at the foot of the bed or almost off to the side in the room. They need to be kind of conducting the resuscitation. The head of the bed will, for a moment, take on a leadership role doing a critical action like intubating. Obviously, there's different scenarios where you are resource limited and you just don't have a lot of people, in which case you have to adapt. And so if you are just having to act because you only have, you know, one other person with you, it's just you and a nurse, it's okay, now the person who's running it is going to be very much hands-on and be probably at the head of the bed, intubating the patient and assisting with other things. So it, it does depend on just your circumstance and resources. But in the ideal scenario, the code leader is not at the head of the bed. Okay. And just another quick one for you. What is an AMBU bag? An AMBU bag, that's a proprietary term. It's referring to a bag valve mask setup. It's a self-inflating balloon-shaped bag that you just can squeeze and it will self-inflate. And it's a means of providing positive pressure to ventilate and oxygenate. Okay, good to know. Another question for you. This scenario sounds very scary. How common is this scenario? Interesting question. The likelihood of a rapid response being called or a code blue is very high. Those happen commonly in the hospital. I remember in my residency training having to get called almost daily, if not multiple times a day. So in that sense, it, I would say very common. This specific scenario of a crashing coding obstetric patient is one I have personally never encountered in the hospital. 
but in my research of this topic, the frequency with which patients admitted for labor and delivery end up having a cardiac arrest is approximately one in 12,000. So you can consider that likely or unlikely depending on your take. Okay, so still a rare presentation, but we are talking about healthy expecting mothers that are presenting to the hospital. One in 12,000 is still somewhat alarming. Can you explain to us why a pregnant woman might be more likely to go into cardiac arrest? What are some of the unique factors of pregnancy? Yeah, definitely. So there's the normal causes of cardiac arrest which we can get into, but speaking to causes that are obstetric specific, I would definitely state that even though you can have hemorrhage in the non-obstetric patient. I do think that hemorrhage requires its own special consideration. There is a significant amount of blood loss that can happen in obstetric patients, and so uh, bleeding needs to definitely be high on your differential. Additionally, there are hypertensive emergencies which are related to pregnancy. So any kind of pregnancy-induced hypertension as a source for a cardiac arrest needs to be considered. Additionally, there's peripartum cardiomyopathy, which is a form of heart failure which can manifest during pregnancy. There are related complications from anesthesia if they had just come out of a delivery. And then we all know about the condition of amniotic fluid embolism, which is unique to the obstetric patient. Okay. Well, thanks for that. And we will get more into the causes of cardiac arrest later. But let's go on to our next clip, which I'll play for you now. So why does the anesthesiologist need help? Anesthesiologists, like me, are experts in airway management. I do hundreds of intubations per year. I'll do thousands across my whole career. The fact is that airway management, like any other procedure, is sometimes difficult. And moreover, while something like 5% of approximately all patients have some sort of difficulty in being able to mask ventilate them, intubate them, deliver oxygen to them in some way, as many as eight times more pregnant patients are difficult to oxygenate or ventilate. That means up to 40% of pregnant patients are difficult to mask ventilate, oxygenate, intubate, do anything you have to in order to save their life from a breathing standpoint. Move to intubation and, and airway protection early, earlier than you would with the non-pregnant patient. Any signs of lacking airway protection or improper air movement should likely be met with a plan to intubate, not just mass ventilate. Mass ventilation is absolutely how you save lives in terms of being able to ventilate and oxygenate a patient, but you need to move earlier because these patients aspirate earlier. They hold food and liquid in their stomach longer, especially during labor. And as a result, that food and liquid comes up and can go down to the lungs, cause a horrible pneumonia and even death. This used to be a very common reason why a pregnant woman died. There are multiple anatomic and physiologic factors as to why pregnant women actually deoxygenate. They lose oxygen from their blood faster, remarkably faster than non-pregnant patients, making it so that you have to do this quickly, and you have to do this well, meaning you got to use an advanced technique from the get-go. For me, that means using vitilaryngoscopy first time every time. That means using a camera, essentially at the end of a stick, to get a visualization of the airway so that you have the best first time past success. In the hands of a non-expert, it makes it easier. 
in the hands of an expert, it makes it almost brainless. And that's what you need in this situation. You need to be brainless and be able to just get the job done. Two last things. Put the idea in your mind that if it doesn't work, stop and move on. Don't ever repeat the same thing over and over again. And lastly, most importantly, a phrase I teach my residents, I hope you remember this, oxygen above all things. That means it doesn't matter how, whether it's through mass ventilation, what we call an LMA, or essentially a mask that sits over the airway, actual intubation, or actually cutting into the neck. Doesn't matter. You have to get oxygen into a patient in order to prevent them from losing their life. All right. We'll chime in again here. We've listened to Dr. Papazian talk about some of the steps for intubation. Uh, but I want to hear from you. What are your best tips for a successful intubation? Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with everything he just said. I will just, I guess, speak a little bit more generally. And my go-to approach to any intubation is to be systematic and to have a standard framework with which you approach it. And so I'm a big fan of mnemonics. I use the mnemonic SOAPME every time I'm doing an intubation. SOAPME stands for suction, oxygen, adjuncts, positioning, medications, and equipment. So for suction, I always have two forms of suction ready at the bedside. Oxygen, I like to have my patients on both a nasal cannula and on a non-rebreather. Then for adjuncts, an OPA, NPA, superglottic airway, such as an IGEL or an LMA, then also having a bougie available. After that positioning, you're going to want the patient in what's called the sniff position where their neck is extended and you try to align their airway in a straight fashion. I just kind of try to picture what would it look like if a patient was sniffing some flowers. You can imagine their head extended slightly and a little bit more uh, anteriorly. Then we have medications. So we have our induction agents and our paralytics. Our induction agents are going to be things like ketamine and atomidate. Our paralytics are going to be things like rocuronium or succinylcholine. You may also want to consider that this patient will likely become hypotensive. And so having something to support that at the bedside too, such as a phenylephrine stick or norepinephrine to help their blood pressure, very important to have as a backup. And then for equipment, it's going to be, as you mentioned, having video laryngoscopy available. If you have it, definitely improves your likelihood of first pass success. And then you will always need a scalpel available in case you need to do an emergent surgical airway. Accompanying that is already you have your bougie, and then you're going to want to have a 6-0 endotracheal tube, which is smaller than your go-to 8-0 or 7-5 if you're doing an intubation for an adult. So having that 6-0 ready is what you would need in case you have to do a surgical airway. Okay, good to know. All right, so back to our talk. I'll play that clip for you now. So back to the task at hand, it's still 2 a.m. She just lost consciousness. And as this happens, the anesthesiologist actually is in fact able to get an airway. But one of the nurses is feeling her carotid pulse and there's no pulse. There's cardiac arrest, meaning loss of life. But the thought going through many of your minds, even the people that are experts in resuscitation here, I'm guessing, is, is a pregnant patient, though. What kind of changes do I need to account for, and how do we best take care of her versus someone who isn't pregnant? So do we need to account for all these changes? 
And the answer is really not much. It's the exact same. There's a lot of myth and misconception about what is or isn't different regarding the finer points that go into making a dead mom become an alive mom once again. And when we look at the ACLS algorithm, those of us that are experts in this here know little of it is actually very well evidence-based. But we do know that people who have died and been resuscitated successfully always, 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 always have received high-quality chest compressions. That means we pushed hard, hard enough to break their ribs in most circumstances. It means we've allowed full release of that heart so it can refill with blood after each compression, keep that blood circulating around. It also means pushing in the right location, the middle of the chest and the lower half of the breastbone. But until recently, there was a belief that the heart of a pregnant woman was actually anatomically pushed up by the gravid uterus, up and to the left. And that's just not true. This led people to believe that we need to push on that upper chest. And that led to suboptimal chest compressions. But it wasn't until 2015 that an image study definitively showed this. It wasn't until eight years ago that we had an imaging study that definitively showed we should just be doing the same thing for pregnant moms. So push where you normally push. Push deep, push hard, push fast. It's simple. So what about drugs in these situations? Pregnant women have what we refer to as an increased volume of distribution or volume of total body water that a drug will dilute into. Do they require larger doses of these medications or maybe smaller doses because of concern for fetal exposure and teratogenicity? They're both questions that come up regularly. I think the best way to remember the answer here is twofold. First, ask yourself if you would change a dose or a route of these medications for any adult patient based on habitus or size. The answer is no, you wouldn't. So don't change the dose. Second, do we care at all if the fetus is exposed to a medication of any kind, if the fetus is literally dying because it isn't receiving any blood flow or isn't receiving any oxygen from the mother because she's not got any blood that's going around and around? No, it doesn't make any sense. Oxygen above all things. And I want to be clear, treating the mom by the best method and this is true in almost all areas of obstetric care and peri-obstetric care, treating the mom by the best method is treating the baby by the best method. Don't take the baby into account. It'll slow you down. And I'm not trying to be crass when I say this. I'm literally trying to save the baby by focusing on the mom. Where medications are administered might matter, and that's a subtlety. Don't freak out about this, though. If you can get a line in her foot faster than you can get a line in her hand, that's okay. You can get her line in her hand later, but ideally above the diaphragm if you can. So going back to doses, we also talk about doses of electricity. The same is true. Don't change it from what you would normally do to any other patient. We used to theorize that there was a increase in chest impedance, meaning resistance to current flow across the chest of a gravid mom just because of the increased size of the breasts. And that's just simply not true. In contrast to the above, however, something that really does occur and does change the plan at least a little in the pregnant patient is that blood flow changes markedly when they lay flat on their back. Nearly any woman who has been pregnant can tell you it's relatively uncomfortable to lie flat on your back with a gravity belly, pushing down your abdomen and pushing up on your diaphragm. That isn't in their minds. This is a reason for that. It's anatomically, you're pushing down on the large blood vessel called the vena cava. It's impeding blood flow to the heart. Turns out your heart wants to receive blood back. And if it doesn't get it, that's going to be really uncomfortable and not 
breathing as well as you would normally when you're upright, also super uncomfortable. And in the arresting patient, we have to do this artificially. We're certainly going to be impairing our ability to restore her life. So until recently, we would just do this. Tilt them. Simple, right? Takes pressure off of the vena cava, that large blood vessel, and it does pull it a little bit away from the diaphragm. Well, it turns out that 15 degrees of tilt isn't enough. 30 degrees of tilt may not be enough, but worse than that, mannequin models have shown pretty dang clearly that chest compression quality drops remarkably and airway management becomes remarkably more difficult in an even slightly tilted patient. So what's the solution? Well, don't tilt them, leave them flat. But I just said that was bad, right? Yes, but there is something that you can do instead. We add a job to all of the jobs that already exist in any code team. And in this case, somebody has to just go to the belly and pull that uterus over manually, pull it off of that vena cava. And that allows chest compressions to work better while they're still laying flat. All right. So we'll, we'll pause again here. I just want to get your thoughts on Dr. Papazian's rundown of ACLS in a pregnant patient. I thought it was phenomenal. I really like that he is stressing the fact that the more we just try to complicate the picture by thinking of all these different considerations that we're going to end up doing lower quality CPR. And when we know that high quality CPR is what leads to improved outcomes in cardiac arrest, anything that interferes with that is going to lead to a worse outcome. And so really what we should do is just do with what we know it works, which is focus on the basics, high quality CPR, rate of 100, 120 a minute, doing breaths every six seconds, just sticking to the basics, and then giving the one caveat, which is that the gravid uterus can compress the IVC. And if that's the case, then what we can do to optimize venous return to the heart is to just displace the uterus to the patient's left. Next question, what are the most common medications given during cardiac arrest? Well, uh, you're going to have uh, epinephrine given basically every three to five minutes. Most commonly, people will also give doses of calcium. They will give bicarb. If they're in a ventricular dysrhythmia, you'll give an antiarrhythmic agent, usually amiodarone or lidocaine. And then if you're suspicious of some of our known reversible causes of arrest, you might give glucose, you might give Narcan, you might give those kinds of things. But the routine ones are going to be epinephrine, calcium, and bicarb. In the pregnant patient, you always have to consider is eclampsia on the differential. And when that's the case, you would give magnesium. It seems like it's actually a pretty low risk medication to give. And so I would probably start off with doing four to six grams of magnesium sulfate for this patient. Very good. And can you give us a rundown of the doses of some of those other medications that you mentioned? Sure. So with epinephrine, it's just the simplest one milligram dose. You're going to be doing calcium chloride in codes, which is a gram of calcium chloride. 
And then your bicarb is coming in these ampules, these 50 milliequivalent ampules. So usually like two to three amps of bicarb is what's given. Okay. And what would be the dose of electricity if a shock is indicated? So I usually do either 150 to 200 joules and I usually just go higher. So I just kind of start with 200. All right. So we'll go on to our last clip. I'll play that for you now. So let's get back to our scenario. You've taken over as leader. Our patient's been arresting for a couple of minutes now. She's young. She's healthy. We think that this has been a simple lack of oxygen causing all this. She has her airway now. She has oxygen now. Why hasn't she come back? And you start thinking about the next steps in ACLS. You ask yourself, what's really the thing impairing optimization of cardiac output, perfusion, oxygenation, ventilation in this specific patient? You're doing high-quality chest compressions. She's gotten the right meds. She's gotten a shock with no return of heart rate. Start to get her a little frustrated. But what's next on the list? Are there other meds I need to think about? What other causes might there be? When we think about the causes of cardiac arrest, we're all taught to learn our H's and T's. But when you think about the maternal patient, you have to realize that there's a lot of physiology and a lot of pathophysiology that comes with pregnancy that leads to us having to think about things that we wouldn't normally think about in a normal, healthy 30-year-old woman. The one I always point out is aortic dissection. Probably wouldn't think of aortic dissection a young, healthy 30-year-old and no risk factors, right? I've seen one. It's scary. Heart failure. Wouldn't think about that but that can happen spontaneously as well. And both of those situations could have presented exactly the way this presents. But I'll tell you, one of the hardest things about running a code is deciding, do I treat something here empirically or do I just keep going with the normal algorithm? But we're still missing the biggest piece of the pathophysiologic puzzle. It's easy to forget in the mix of all of this that there's a whole other life dependent on, not dependent on, impeding the resuscitation of this arresting patient. So it may sound crazy and it may sound crass, but we need to get the fetus out. There's actually a rule here. Cut by four minutes, baby out by five minutes. That means a C-section in one minute. Our obstetrician friends are amazing because I have seen C-sections done in 30 seconds. They can do it fast when they need to and they save lives. What might seem even crazier though is you don't go to an operating room. We do it right there at bedside in the labor room, not sterile, no antibiotics, no anesthesia. And in fact, the anesthesia drugs can be harmful to the resuscitation effort. They can impair your ability to get return of spontaneous circulation. So don't give any meds. First time I heard this, I was a little bit dumbfounded and honestly a little bit shocked. This whole procedure is called a perimortem cesarean, literally meaning around death surgical delivery. And truly, this is the only protocol that we consider a really true and complete detour to the standard ACLS algorithm for moms versus not moms. And it was first described hundreds of years ago. But it's also really reasonable to ask, is there truly a benefit to mom or is this just something we've decided we do? I'll tell you the physiology makes sense. She gets 15% more cardiac output as no longer going to baby going to that gravid uterus, immediately gets that. And that gets to participate in chest compressions and oxygenation, all that circulation that you're trying to do. She gets 1.5 liters, up to 1.5 liters more blood immediately back into her vena cava that also gets to help with oxygenation, delivery, and those chest compressions. 
Uterine displacement is no longer needed, so you free up people. And lastly, there's no longer this huge mass that's pushing up on the diaphragm and impairing ventilatory efforts and impairing oxygenation. Do we actually have any data? Do we actually have anything that shows that this is true, that it actually works? And it's a solid yes. One of the few things in ACLS that we have is a solid yes. And it's one of the few things in obstetric care that we have that's a solid yes in terms of the data. Between 18 and 32% improvement in success of resuscitation out of cardiac arrest, meaning dead to alive. This means that one out of every three moms who would not have come back to life will if we perform a delivery in this fashion at the time of arrest. Moreover, it doesn't really seem to be a downside. Bleeding and other risks are insignificant and inconsequential in comparison. We're talking about alive versus dead. We don't care about a little bit of blood loss here. We don't care about risk of infection. Again, it sounds crass, but in this situation, we have to just focus on alive versus dead. And additionally, I'm using the word crazy a lot, but sometimes somewhat crazily, mom isn't the only one that benefits here. Baby does too. Neonatal outcomes improve markedly. Once you get past 37 weeks, once you get to term, survival is actually pretty amazing if you actually do this. And that's been described as far back as the 1960s. Sadly, though, despite all of this, and despite an outpouring of advocacy by people like me, and guidelines for this practice, one-third of moms that die and stay dead remain undelivered. It's unacceptable. The fact is, unless there's a reason not to, you're doing more to save both lives. If the most experienced person able to do so performs a paramortem cesarean delivery, if they're even somewhat able to do so. All right. So now it's time for us to have our discussion about the causes of cardiac arrests. I know we've talked about them a little bit, but Dr. Papazian brought up another mnemonic that I think it could be beneficial to go over. Can you give us a rundown of the H's and T's of arresting patients and maybe which are the easiest to miss? Sure. So the H's and T's are very standard mnemonic that we all learn when learning ACLS. So your H's are going to be things like hypovolemia, hypoxia, hydrogen ion excess, so that's really acidosis, hypoglycemia, hypo and hyperkalemia, and hypothermia. Regarding the T's, that's going to be our tension pneumothorax, a tamponade, so pericardial tamponade, Toxins such as opioid overdose, tricyclic antidepressant overdose, any type of overdose in particular can cause cardiac arrest. Then we have thrombosis, and that's referring to pulmonary embolism, and then also thrombosis within the coronary arteries being a uh, myocardial infarction. All right. So I think a good way to end this would just to have you repeat Dr. Papazian's advocacy point from the end of his talk. So if you don't have ROSC by four minutes in a pregnant patient, what should you do? It's cut by four, deliver by five. Something I fortunately have never had to do. Fortunately, I'm at a center with excellent obstetricians who can readily come to the bedside. So like he does say in this talk, 
to have the most experienced person there do your perimortem C-section. Clearly, there's a very important mortality benefit that's conferred by doing that. So cut by four, delivered by five. All right. We thank Dr. Papazian for his talk. I hope everyone listening learned something today. Thank you, Dr. Barlock, for talking with me today. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for having me back. This was a very fun event to put on, and it was good analysis to run through today. Yeah. Well, I've been Jeffrey Olson, and this has been Emergency Medical Minute.